0: As you can see, we began a a new series for September that will lead us into our harvest of hope called How to Start a Fire. Now, in case you think this is a series for pyromaniacs, it is not. Uh, We did not provide you with matches as you came in the door. We want to talk about a different kind of fire. Now, starting a fire, uh, I guess... I guess I learned a little something about starting a fire from my scouting days, but I have to be honest, I flunked Boy Scouts. Well, I'm not sure you can actually flunk Boy Scouts, uh, but I was definitely not scouting material at all. Uh, I, I did achieve the rank of tenderfoot, but I think that's entry level. I'm not sure I actually earned any merit badges Now, I have a godson who's an Eagle Scout, but uh, I definitely didn't follow, he didn't follow in my footsteps because I was not scouting material. And I should have known it very early on uh, because I went on two camping trips as a scout. One as a Cub Scout, one as a Boy Scout, and they were both awful experiences. I mean, we went out, I remember as a Cub Scout, we went out, uh, there was this guy who had some woods out behind his field, and so there was a little clearing area. So we went out, we pitched our tents, our Cub Scout troop went out, and of course, you know, we all brought our Pop-Tarts and everything like that. And but built a big fire. We got to run around with flashlights and and all that was it was not bad. Slept in sleeping bags and that, that was okay. Until the morning came. And I woke up and I thought I was going to absolutely freeze to death. I was so cold and I couldn't figure out what the fun in this was at all. And then to make it worse, somebody turned on their radio and the forecaster said, it's 62 degrees. I'm going, you know what, if I'm freezing outdoors and it's 62 degrees, then maybe this camping stuff is not for me. And then we went on the Boy Scout, went on a camperry. Some of you know what a campery is. It's where all the troops get together in a certain group, and they meet at a big big campsite, and, and all pitch their tents, and there's competitions, you know, tying ropes and, and uh, you know, water safety and all kinds, building a fire and all those kinds of things. Well, we went, and we set up, and I think it was on a Friday we went and set up, and it was already cloudy, and we got the tents pitched, and then the bottom dropped out. I mean, it was a tropical storm just blew in and just set, and it poured, and it poured. And the, really, the only activity that we had the entire day was taking those little half of shovels that they give you and trying to dig a, enough of a trench around the tent to keep the water out of the tent, which, to be honest, we stayed in until our scoutmaster finally says, let's break them down and go home. Those were my two adventures in camping out as a scout. It told me one thing. The next time I went camping, there needed to be a firm bed, a soft pillow, running water, and a hot breakfast. That, for me, is about as far into camping as I want to go. And my children will vouch for you I have never once taken them camping. Now, they may be feel deprived, neglected, uh, but I was in my bed. So anyway, it's okay. Now, having said that, I do kind of like to watch every once in a while, those survival shows on TV, not the fake stuff like survivor, but the fake stuff like man versus wild. You may have seen it bear grills. Okay. What a cool name. Why did not my parents name me bear or, or just some kind of wild animal? It would have been my luck that they called me opossum. But he, he, gets, he gets dropped into some remote place. Have you seen this? He gets dropped into some remote place, and all he, got is, all he has is a pocket knife and a granola bar. And he's got to figure out how to survive and get himself back to civilization or to a pickup point. And, and it's, it's pretty interesting. And, of course, I'm always thinking, what is the cameraman doing all this time? But it, it, it's pretty, the cameraman's sitting back there eating steak every night. And here at Bear Grylls, though, he's like, oh, oh here's a salamander. And he grabs a salamander and he guts the salamander and he puts it on a stick and then then he has to start a fire so he gets his pocket knife out in a rock or a piece of moss or something and he makes a fire and he you know he cooks that salamander and he's just, there and he just eats the salamander and, and he's just surviving and it, it, it rains and so he he gets his leaves and you know he gets the water off the leaves and it's a pretty impressive thing that he does. And all the while, he's getting eaten up by mosquitoes or whatever's out there. And, and the cameraman's just sitting back eating Pop-Tarts. You know, he's got his off, and he's like, no, I'm not sharing. But, you know, so, so surviving's pretty cool. But one of the neat things is, is starting a fire when you don't have matches. And there are lots of ways I learned. I had to look this up because I didn't learn this in Scouts. I didn't get the merit badge in starting a fire. Uh, although my brother did set the garden on fire a couple of times, but I, I didn't do that. There are a number of ways you can start a fire. You can, you know, with the stick and rubbing the stick like this on a on a board with a hole in it. You can you can kind of get a fire started that way. Uh, there's, you know, a knife and a flint. You can get a fire started that way. Um, one of the fun ways to start a fire, if you're ever out camping and you need to start a fire, then just go to your backpack and get your 9-volt battery and some steel wool, which we all carry camping, right? That's just part of your normal gear. That's actually a pretty cool way to start a fire with a 9-volt battery and steel wool. Um, Children, don't try this at home. It It will get that steel wool heated up, and you can get a spark, and you get it going. But the whole point, the whole point is you get a spark, And then from that spark, you get a flame. And that's what we want to talk about over the course of these next few weeks, but not in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense. To get a spiritual spark and then to fan that into a blaze. And we want to spread it. You may be seeing reports take place out, uh, you know, in Colorado and California and places like that, the wildfires get going and they just... They just just consume miles and miles and miles at a time. That's a terrible thing. But what we want to see, and what I'm praying for, is that God's going to do that in a spiritual sense, that we would be the start of a wildfire, a spiritual wildfire that would spread throughout our homes and our community, that would spread throughout our county and even to the state, that people would say, what in the world is going on in Greene County? That's what I want to see. That's what I'm praying God will bring about. And I want to ask you to begin to pray that way as well, to begin to pray big prayers, not just, you know, God, heal my big toe that I kicked last night when I ran into a piece of furniture in the dark, but to begin to pray big prayers. God, take this little spark that I am and use me to start a blaze to make a huge difference in our community for Jesus Christ God I want to see people come to know you I want to see people convicted of sin and I want to see Christians convicted to share God do something you've never done before in Greene County and so where do we begin I want to begin with a simple statement because we talk about revival well only God can bring revival Only God can bring revival. Now, you can schedule revival meetings. You can invite a revival speaker. You can invite revival singers. You can put ads on the radio and in the newspaper. But revival by its very nature is the work of God. Listen to me. Revival by its very nature is the work of God. You can calendar it but you cannot schedule it. It is God's work. So you might be going, well, wait a minute. We've been praying here, and we've got this harvest of hope that's coming up in October. Why in the world are we doing all of that if only God can bring revival? Why don't we simply pray for revival right where we are, keep doing what we're doing, and just wait for God to bring it? Well, here's the reason that churches schedule revivals Other than just tradition, we do it every year kind of thing. Here's the reason that churches schedule revivals and we've scheduled our harvest of hope. And here's the reason. Because we need to focus our attention. We need to focus our attention. We as a people are notoriously distracted. We have cultural ADD, attention attention deficit disorder the activity and the noise of our world keeps us constantly distracted and we jump from one perceived crisis to another. Scheduled revival services or scheduled evangelistic services or crusades or whatever they're called are like tying the string around your finger, setting an alarm to go off on your phone, like the church bell chiming or the siren going off They are to get our attention, to focus. This is who we are. This is what we're here for. There's a world in desperate need of what we have. Not that we've got it all figured out. Not that we have it all together. But we are among those who have been chosen by God, called out, saved, and are on our way to heaven. And God's call is take as many with you as you can. Bring as many along as you can. And revival services, crusades, harvest of hope, whatever we're doing is a way to say, hey, church, wake up. We have a mission. God's calling us to do something. And so revival services are a reminder to pray for revival, to connect with our unchurched friends in a meaningful, intentional way, and to prepare ourselves for God to do something awesome. I've been a part of a lot of plans for revival. But there was very little expectation that God would do something completely new, different, awesome, and radical. Are you praying that way? When you think about it, are you praying that way? Some of you wrote names on this cross that you, to be honest, you you have no expectation of that person ever coming to know Jesus. I mean, you wrote them up there because you were concerned about them. But are you praying for them on a daily basis? Are you looking for those opportunities to be able to share the reason for the hope that you have in you? Do you expect God to reach down into their lives And to meet them at the point of their deepest need. I hope you do. I want you to. Because God's got something great he wants to do. And the good news is he wants us to be part of it. He's included us in this great work of his. Way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea spoke to the people and to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel... And he spoke about a destruction that was to come. But in the midst of this discussion about destruction, and I'd encourage you just to go back and and read Hosea 10. In the midst of this discussion about the destruction that God is going to bring, he ignites this little spark of hope. This is where he gets out his stick and he begins to rub it and this little spark of hope leads out in the midst of all this destruction in the midst of all this judgment in the midst of all this condemnation people I want to let you know what Hosea is saying is there's a spark of hope that could ignite into a flame and this is what he says it's in uh, Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Hosea called the people to take the initiative to break up the unplowed ground. Now, he was not calling them to go out and get the oxen and the plows and to hit the fields. He's talking about their hearts. He's talking about on the inside. The unplowed, hardened ground on the inside. Now, only God can bring revival. But that does not mean that you and I should just go find some park bench to sit on and wait for him to bring it. If we truly want to see God's sin revival, then we must break up the unplowed ground of our hearts. Now, I didn't think so at the time, but I owe my dad a great deal of gratitude for what he taught me about gardening. Now, my dad decided he wanted to be a gardener on steroids Uh, he could have qualified as a survivalist because he went out back out behind our uh, we called it the barn it's actually a concrete block area but he went out back and he he grew a garden but not like the little garden I grew in our first house that had two rows with some tomatoes and cucumbers and you know a few bell peppers and a few things when he planted a garden he was so serious about it, he went out and bought a tractor. Now, if you have a garden and you use a tractor, you're pretty serious about gardening. And so he bought this tractor. And the garden just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I thought he was going to overtake the whole community. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. But what would happen is, at the end of the season, where most of the things were growing, and we'd already harvested everything that needed to be harvested, the ground would just sit. It would just sit. And then, of course, as it got closer to time to plant, something would happen. We'd pull the tractor out. We'd get the plow out. Or if my dad really was loving me at the time, he'd give me the tiller. Have you ever worked a tiller? Wait a minute, let me change that. Has a tiller ever worked you? Okay that had to be the most back-breaking labor if you could get it into the ground it shook you like this and if it ever came up off the ground it just took off and you were just chasing behind it it was the craziest thing but we go out and this ground after it is sat there undisturbed for a period of time got hard packed and before you could plant a seed you had to tear up the soil Without breaking up the hard ground, you cannot plant the seed. And if you don't plant the seed, you'll never reap the harvest. That's what my dad told me. Before you can plant the seed, you have to break up the ground. And if you don't plant the seed, there is no harvest. Anybody who's ever grown a garden or ever farmed fully understands that principle. It's real simple. Hosea said it. Now, most of us, we get our vegetables out of a can. Some of you may never have stepped foot on a farm. You may never have had a garden. You may never have had the pleasure of walking behind a tiller. But I'm here to tell you that that ground after a while gets so hard packed that there is no way. No way for a seed to penetrate until the ground is broken up. It is time for God to break up the ground of your heart. He wants to do something in you that requires you to take the initiative to begin to till up the soil of your heart. You see, revival is not just a time we want to draw people into a relationship with Christ. It is that. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying not for one, not for five, not for ten, but for dozens of people to come to know Christ through this harvest of hope. I'm praying for dozens of people to come to know Christ. Do you realize the impact that makes on this community? If three or four dozen people, 36, 48, or how many ever God chooses, were to come to know Christ, what a difference it would make in this community. I don't know that there's been a time that that's ever happened. That in a short span of time, there's been this this revival that swept us up uh, at least since uh, the, the 18th century. Could God do it again? He can. Will he? Well, I don't know what necessarily God has in store, but I do know this. God will not do it with churches filled with people whose hearts are unreceptive, unresponsive, and hardened towards him. And this is not meant to be an accusation. This is not meant to be a condemnation. This is a period of evaluation where you ask yourself, what is the condition of my heart? Has it become tough and calloused and hardened over time? Revival is a time to be honest with ourselves. It's a time for more than a cursory glance in the mirror and then walking away and forgetting what we've seen. Instead, it's a time to go to God and say, God, would you turn on your heavenly spotlight and would you shine into every crevice and corner of my life and would you show me anything? anything at all that's getting in the way of you reviving me so that I can be an instrument of revival in my community. God, would you show me any unconfessed sin? Would you show me any, show me any unnecessary guilt? Would you show me my stubbornness? Would you show me my pride? And then God, don't let me turn a blind eye and ignore it. Keep on shining, turn up the intensity, crank up the volume, Until I have no other choice but to get the tiller out and begin to tear up my heart. Breaking up those clods of dirt in preparation for what you want to do inside of me. We need to be reminded to draw near to God. To confess those unconfessed sins. And to renew our commitment to Jesus. Because the stresses and concerns of this life They they pull us away from that. The temptations of this world dance in front of us like a puppet show, inviting us to go and to join them. The busyness, the busyness of life saps our energy so that all we want to do at the end of the day is go home and hit the recliner. And we've got no time for anything that has to do with the kingdom. Jesus spoke some penetrating words. He spoke them to a church in a place called Laodicea. They were believers there. They had a community of faith there. But as Jesus looked beyond what was everybody else would have seen and said, hey, that's a great church. That's a church that needs to be written up in the Christian index. That's the church that needs to be put on the cover of Christianity today. That's a great church. When Jesus looked into that church. He saw something different. And this is what he said to that church in Revelation chapter 3. He said, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. I know your deeds that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Let's take a a little while to digest this. Jesus begins by saying, I know your deeds. For some of you, that is extraordinarily comforting, and for others, that is extraordinarily disturbing. I know your deeds. I know what's going on in your life. I know what you're like before that first cup of coffee. I know the argument that you had with your husband or wife yesterday. I know that. I know those thoughts that go through your mind as you lay on your bed before you go to sleep. I know what you said in traffic in Atlanta last week. I know what you watched on television. I know it all. Here's the deal. He knows us. And he still loves us. And he still wants us. And he could wash his hands of us, but he won't. Because remember, he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He says, I know your deeds. And what does he see when he sees their deeds? He says that they're they're lukewarm. And he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. When Jesus looked into the church in Laodicea, he, he saw a lukewarm church. And again, it's not that they were as bad as they could have been. It's not that they were living in outright rebellion rebellion to to God's will. They weren't living lives that were steeped and stained deeply in sin. It's not that they weren't dedicated to Christ. They had simply become spiritually lethargic. They were drifting along. Their, Their faith didn't make an impact. In their lives and their church wasn't making an impact in their community they were just kind of hanging in there till Jesus showed back up enjoying their potlucks together enjoying their small groups together enjoying their fellowship together but not making any difference for the kingdom of God not recognizing God had called them not just to be his sons and daughters but also to be salt and light because they were adrift in the doldrums somewhere between vitality and apathy, Jesus said, you're not hot, you're not cold. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want to give you a modern translation that I think is going to be pretty accurate. Jesus looked at them. And because they were so spiritually lethargic, indifferent. What he was saying is, you make me sick. You make me want to vomit. I often wonder what a letter to the church in America might look like if Jesus wrote it. I often wonder what a letter to Grace Fellowship might look like if Jesus wrote it. What would a letter to you look like if Jesus wrote it to you? But he goes on. He says, you claim to be rich and you need nothing. But you're shameful, pitiful, poor, blind, And naked, and maybe that's the worst of it. They were so spiritually apathetic and indifferent that the problem was they didn't even see it. They didn't realize just how bad things had gotten. Okay, we're okay, everything's going along swimmingly here. We've got a safe place to meet. We've got food to eat. We've got money in the bank. We can be generous with our offerings. We can even help out a poor person from time to time. But this thin veneer of prosperity and spirituality covered a cesspool of sin and indifference. They said, you know what? We got this. We're okay. We don't need anything. This morning we sang... Just I am, just as I am, with a little bridge added, and the words are I come broken to be mended. I come desperate to be rescued. I come wounded to be healed. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned. And i'm welcomed with open arms just as i am why do we feel the need to pretend with god most of you when you got up this morning and got ready you went to your closet or your dresser and you pulled out whatever clothing you were going to wear we don't dress up here most of the time don't we're not wearing three-piece suits and nice you know fancy dresses with hats and all that but most of us we've got some clothes set aside I kind of wear this during the week but I I save these like these shoes you know I save these these are Sunday shoes and uh, just an old thing from from my past you got a pair of shoes these just belong to Sunday okay you don't get them all scuffed up because in my case I may have to wear them for a wedding or a funeral and then you definitely want to look as good as you can possibly look for that and so I kind of reserve these they have their own slot in the closet and but I think sometimes when we're getting dressed, we pay a lot more attention to the mask that we want to put on. Because we really, uh, we, we don't want God to know what's going on in our lives. And we sure don't want other people to know what's going on in our lives. What would they think of me? They'll turn their backs on me. They'll walk away from me. They'll, it'll ruin my reputation if, if people know what's going on in my life. Why do we feel that we need to pretend in the presence of Jesus? We know he knows. It's not like God's going to one day read something on the front page of the inquirer and be shocked about it. We will never experience revival, personal revival, and genuine transformation if we can't be honest with God about our own lives. One of the biggest barriers to spiritual health and spiritual growth that we have is the pretense that I've got this. I'm good. I don't need anything else but for once can we come before the father with absolute honesty in brokenness and humility and say god what a mess i've made with this god i've got so much stress my life feels completely out of control Lord, my faith is so, so weak. And my pride is so big. Can we come honestly before God and say, God, I'm broken. I'm a mess. Well, there's a cure for that. And the cure is found in what we read in this letter to the church in Laodicea. Because Jesus says to be earnest, that is to be serious, sober, clear-minded. Repent, which means to turn away from our sin and turn to God. And open the door to let Jesus come in. Be close, in close fellowship with him. The words of Jesus are like this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's often been used as an invitation for people who don't know Christ to receive him. But that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus was speaking to believers. Jesus was speaking to us. Jesus is saying to you, to you, to you this morning, I am standing at the door of your heart right now, knocking. Can you hear it over the blare of the television, through the earbuds that we've got plugged into our iPods, Through all the noise of life, can you hear that there's a Savior, your Savior, who died on the cross for your sins, standing at the door of your heart and knocking incessantly, not angrily, not rudely, but endlessly knocking. And Jesus said, if you would open that door, here's here's my promise to you. I'm not going to come in and just tell you how awful you are because we both know all oh, that already. We don't have to get into the details on this thing. But instead, because you are my child, I will come in. And Jesus said, I, I, I'll have supper with you. And what that? that listen, in, in Middle Eastern culture, There was this this idea of hospitality that still exists today. You don't hear a lot about it because we see bombs going off and all this stuff. But literally, a stranger could show up at your door if you were in Middle Eastern culture, and you would be obliged to not only bring them in but to give them the best of what you had. And you'd fellowship together. And Jesus said, "I'm, I'm standing at your door and knocking. And if you'll open, I'll come in, and we'll connect. I'll come in, and there'll be a closeness with us. Now, other than a traveling salesman or Jehovah Witnesses, usually when somebody comes to your door, they'd like to come in. There's a savior this morning who'd like to come in. This is an invitation to intimate fellowship with the savior of our souls. That's what this is. Some of you got a religion, God said you need a relationship. Some of you live by core principles, God said you need a relationship, you need fellowship, you need intimacy. And he's ready to give it to you today. And so the question I ask you is, do you want it? I mean, that's the first question of honesty right there is, do I really want that with Jesus? Or am I content to keep him at arm's length, to just know he's outside the door and I'm good with that? Or do I really, really, really want to be close with him today? Can you be honest and say, God, my life is a mess? He knows that. And he still knocks. Can you say this morning, I am broken. I am wounded. I am desperate. I am empty. I am guilty. If that's your life, it's time to be honest with God. To break up the unplowed ground of your heart and seek the Lord. Be honest with yourself. Turn away from sin. Turn to Him. Open the door and let Jesus come in. That's the message God has for believers this morning, for you and for me. But you know, there's also a Savior who stands at the door of a different kind of heart a heart that's never surrendered to Him, a heart that's never been broken over sin. And he knocks at that door or two. He wants to come in for the first time and to give you something you've never had. And that is a relationship with the God of the universe. A peace that passes all understanding. And security that lasts for eternity. He wants to give all that to you right now. Some of you have been seeking that. You've been wanting that. You've been desirous of that. But you didn't know how to get it comes very simply, the Bible tells us that if we're willing to turn from our sin and turn to him and believe in Jesus, that we can be born again. Now before some of you get freaked out, being born again means being born from above, being born by the Spirit, having a new life that can begin right now for you. And so this morning as we close this message, I want to pray for those of you who are believers. And I want to pray for those of you who aren't there yet. But who want to be.